We're very thankful to have um, Dave uh, preaching this morning, and uh, it's been um, such a blessing to hear him preach already, and uh, one of the biggest things that disqualifies people from being effective biblical counselors is a very simple but crucial disqualification, is you can't be a biblical counselor if you don't know the Bible. And uh, it is just an incredible blessing to our congregation that Dave is here and willing to teach and serve and, and uh, is a man who knows the Word of God. And so we're, we're thankful to welcome him to come and preach. Thanks, Dave. Good morning, Sandra. Good morning, everyone. I'd like this morning to introduce you, <coughs> excuse me, to one of my Old Testament heroes. And to do that, we'll open in his book, which is the book of Ezra. So if you care to turn there, we'll read from uh, chapter 7. Verses 1 to 10. Now after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitab, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. And by the way, the word son in Hebrew just means ancestor. So believe it or not, we've skipped over a bunch of names that are actually in Ezra's lineage that aren't recorded here. So just understand they're not direct sons. Uh, when you heard the hear the word Ben, as in Benjamin, Benjamin, that means son of my right hand, but son is really the idea of ancestor. So we've got the whole lineage of Ezra all the way back to Aaron the priest. Now verse six. This Ezra went up from Babylon and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. <clears throat> Excuse me. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king, for on the first of the first month he began to go up from Babylon, and on the first of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem. 
because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Father, we do pray that this word of yours might indeed speak to us and that you by your Holy Spirit would open our hearts, show us how to apply it, and when possible how to minister it as well like Ezra. And we pray this for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the year was 458 B.C. A lot was happening all over the world. The fascinating thing about the book of Ezra is if you're imagining sort of a, a television shot on a football field where all of a sudden it zooms in on a specific player, that's a little bit what we want to do today. So we're going to back off and take a look at the whole scenario. This was a time of momentous movements and empires and kingdoms. As you're probably curious about the map in the back, which may be hard to see, but uh, we'll use it just to give you a literally vague idea. Uh, but as far as people were concerned, again, 458 BC, and you remember that as you work through the chronology of the Old Testament, you count down which means you're getting closer and closer to us. So this is 458 BC. In 557 to 447 over in India, Buddha was alive and ministering. Definitely not a resurrected savior. He's dead now. In China, around the same time, Confucius was alive and ministering. Over in Greece, just about the same time, there was Herodotus. Now, you may not be acquainted with him, but he's considered the father of ancient history. And he gives very, very detailed accounts of Persian wars. And we're about to deal with the king of Persia, who is the king over Ezra at his time. This was the time of Socrates. Now, if you were in Brazil like we were, he's a famous soccer player. <laughs> we're, we're not talking about him. We're talking about the philosopher Socrates of Grecian origin. And then there was the golden age of Pericles going on. It was the most flourishing period of the Greeks in the area of art and science. And just a little bit after this time with uh, Ezra, we have Plato and Aristotle. I mean, these are all names that to this day we recognize. So in a sense, in the world's eyes, we're going to focus in on a relatively obscure and unimportant man who enters the scene in the city of Babylon. Now, before 
we get into the three points I want to make about Ezra's life, and just to give you sort of a preview, we're going to look at the purpose of his life, and just as a memory sort of set of hooks, the purpose of his life, the program of his life, and the progress of his life. So we are going to focus on him, but we need to do this step back to look at the whole football field, as it were. And remember something about Old Testament history so you can kind of place yourselves. You remember that the first kings of the united monarchy in Old Testament were Saul, then David, and then Solomon. And you remember in 1 Kings 11, sadly, there was an apostasy on the part of Solomon where he married foreign wives, and he actually dotted the hills around Jerusalem, sadly, with little altars to foreign gods, apparently to make his foreign wives comfortable. But he did not wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, follow the Lord his God. He actually got distracted. How sad that a man as wise as he was was distracted to idolatry together with his foreign wives. That doesn't mean that he abandoned Jehovah, but it is very clear that there was a level of apostasy going on and God disciplined the nation because of that and it split. And you remember there was the northern king of Israel, 10 tribes of the 12, and then two tribes in the south called Judah. It was actually Judah and Benjamin. And the northern tribes uh, set up two golden calves and said, this is your God, and worshiped them. And of all the kings of the northern tribes, there was not one good and godly one. There were some very powerful ones, recognized even in their time, but not good or godly in the eyes of God himself. That was not true in the southern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, you may remember names like Hezekiah or Josiah. They were godly kings who brought the nation back to the worship of the true God, Jehovah, our God, the same God we know and worship whose son is our precious Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got the divided kingdom. Now, God was incredibly patient with these two nations, the northern and the southern, because they were up and down, roller coaster wise, spiritually, up and down and up and down, and in the case of the northern kingdom, mostly down. How sad. And God sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them, and they didn't heed, they didn't obey, they worshiped their foreign gods. So one passage just to show you why what happened next was fully merited. God had told them again and again, if you insist on this way, 
I will send you out of this land, the promised land, the land of milk and honey that was so dearly won for you. And we will send you into exile. I will send you to be scattered among the nations. So, if, if I were to choose maybe one passage, it would be this one. This is from 2 Kings 17, verses 7 to 15. I'm going to read it because it's pretty horrific. But lest you think that God is just kind of fickle and kind of get, had a bad day, uh, remember that God is long-suffering, so amazingly patient. And yet, this is why Israel fell. Now, it's specifically talking about the northern kingdom here, but it later became true of the southern kingdom as well. Both nations were sent into exile. So 2 Kings, and I'm reading from the NASB, so it may be a little different. Now this came about, the exile, because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nation whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel which they had introduced. The sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places, places of false worship, idolatry, in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set for themselves sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things, provoking the Lord. They served idols, concerning which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, and which I sent you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with their fathers and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them, concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. Just a little further through 18. They forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God, and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire, and practiced divination and enchantments, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. Now even the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom, eventually went into exile as well. Now this is where the map comes in, so 
uh, the map in back, if you can see it, your eyes may not be as, mine are not great, but at least with glasses I can see, that's the, uh, those are the Assyrian and Babylonian empires at the time of the exiles. Now, the Assyrians were the ones who took into exile the northern kingdom in 722 BC. And their policy for depopulating a country was simply to take everybody out, scatter them sort of willy-nilly among all of their empire, and then they took strangers, other captives from other countries, and put them into Israel. And by the way, that is how the whole Samaritan race came into being. You remember, in the time of the Lord Jesus, they did not worship in the same way that the Jewish people did. They worshipped in Samaria, and they were a mongrel race, a mixed race, where some of the poor Jews that were left intermarried with some of these strangers that came in and filled what had been northern Israel with the mongrel race known as the Samaritans. So that was Assyria. And by the way, they were a vicious, vicious people. I've read some old documents from some of their kings, and they loved to skin people alive and other things that I won't go into now that are just uh, gruesome. And that is one reason why the prophet Jonah so hated them and was absolutely revolted at the idea of going to preach <clears throat> to Nineveh because he knew that that meant there was some possibility that they might respond to the message and they might be saved, they might come to worship the true God, and he just couldn't stomach that any more than the fish could stomach him. Now, Judah then, you'd think they would have learned the lesson, but sadly, they didn't. As I mentioned, there was just before the exile of Judah, a very good king named Josiah. And why is that important? Well, because he responded with a whole heart and deep contrition when the word of God was found in the rubble of the temple. Why the rubble of the temple? <laughs> because the abandonment of God was so great that there was rubble lying around in the temple of God. And when Josiah asked for that to be cleaned up, it was through one of Ezra's relatives called Hilkiah, who found the book of the law in 622 BC. And you remember Josiah's response. He just, his heart was rent in two. He, he was deeply, deeply uh, contrite and aware that God's people had been sinning viciously against God. And God stayed that execution. But then came other kings after him who were not good kings. And Jeremiah was preaching all the time. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come. He is going to conquer this city, destroy this temple, and send you into exile. No one believed him. There were false prophets all over the place saying, oh, don't believe that. This is going to pass. It's all going to be good. Thank you. 
and it wasn't. So the last king on Judah's side was called Zedekiah. And for a while he submitted to Babylon, but then he too rebelled. And Nebuchadnezzar had him taken north about 180 miles to a place called Riblah, which was his field encampment, Nebuchadnezzar's, had Zedekiah's eyes put out immediately after seeing his two sons slaughtered. The last sight that he ever had on this earth was of his own sons being killed. And then he was taken bound in bronze shackles to Babylon. So it was awful. But the policy of the Babylonians was somewhat different. What they did was take the captive people to their own city, Babylon. And Jeremiah had prophesied that the Jewish people would actually prosper. And he even said, pray for Babylon because it's the city where my people will be and therefore pray for blessing on that city so that you too, Jewish people, may be blessed. One of the other men who was killed, and by the way, the deportations into exile of Judah came in three waves. You may remember, 605, 597, 586. Remember Daniel? He was taken as a young man in the first deportation, uh, deportation in 605. And by the way, at 605, that started the clock ticking on the 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah the prophet had prophesied. So, one of the men who was killed was a high priest called Sariah, and he's mentioned in the passage we read in Ezra 7. It says Ezra was his son, and again, actually, Sariah was probably his great-great-grandfather, and he was executed by Nebuchadnezzar. The high priest was executed at Riblah, as were the sons of King Zedekiah. So, hope you're not getting all confused, but these were enormous empires. The Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, and you remember Nebuchadnezzar was thinking of Daniel on the statue, the golden head. He was probably the most powerful, most famous, well-known king of all the kings of the ancient East. So, now we come to Ezra. The first return had happened, and this is in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. We're not going to look at that. That's the first return from exile, and that happened in about 538 B.C. What happened? Well, by then, the year before, a man named Cyrus, the first Persian king, came into power. He defeated the Babylonians, which was amazing. But their power had waned, and now we have a whole Persian empire. We got Scooter still around here. You want to you wanna change the slide? <laughs> uh, we're going to look at the Persian empire, which was vast. And if you remember the book of Esther, okay, 
That also happened under the Persian Empire. Go for it if it's still working. <laughs> it's that little arrow on the... So there it is. Uh, this is when Ezra takes place. But we first talk about Cyrus. Why? Because Cyrus was actually prophesied by the word of God in the book of Isaiah to be the one who is going to send the people back from exile to Jerusalem. And how they long for that. And many people think tradition says Daniel, who was such a key figure in Nebuchadnezzar's reign and then spilling over even into the Persian reign, may have actually shown to Cyrus, the new Persian king, the book of Isaiah prophesying 100 years before he even existed that Cyrus would conquer and would send the people back the Jewish people back to their lands. What an, what an amazing thing. So, Cyrus allowed them to go. He provided finances. He gave them free reign because he wanted the blessing. And there's actually been a cylinder uh, with writing on it, the way they recorded things in those days, called the Cyrus Cylinder, saying that he did this with many nations because he wanted the blessing of all the gods that he could get. Very eclectic. So he figured, well, if I can get the God of Jerusalem and the gods of the Medes and whoever else praying for me and blessing me, I will be successful. So it wasn't as though he was a convert to Jehovah. But he certainly had to be impressed by the fact that Isaiah had written by name, of Cyrus 100 years before he was even born, saying that he would reign and that he would send the people back out of exile to Jerusalem. That was in 538 BC. And what happened? They came back and they went under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel and a high priest named Joshua. And you read about those, sorry to to bring in all these different figures, but that's where the books of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the prophet, all prophesied, the two of them, in 520 BC. Why? Because when they got back, of course, they found the city absolutely devastated, raised, swept clean, temple totally destroyed. What was the first thing they needed to do? Well, they needed to build homes for themselves, just something to live in. And then right after that, they built the altar and began worshiping the Lord as he had prescribed once again. And they began building the temple. But there was opposition. There were enemies. And so they let the weeds grow on that foundation for 16 years. And... Then they finally got to work. And Haggai said, be courageous and work. <laughs> he was uh, probably in his 80s. So you can just imagine this fiery old man. And he was a man of few words, but very direct. 
be courageous and work. And he was very direct. He said, Zerubbabel, be courageous and work. Joshua, be courageous and work, the high priest. People of God, be courageous and work, and God will bless you. (laughs) And then Zechariah came along about two months later and began his preaching as well. So the temple was completed, and it's interesting to read. It's even in the book of Esther in the earlier chapters. There was weeping and cheering. Why weeping? Because there were older men who had come back who had seen the original temple. They'd seen the glory of God, the Shekinah glory in the temple. They'd seen all the lavish gold and all the beautiful carvings in the original temple, which was totally destroyed. And they saw this inferior temple. It was smaller. It was minimalist, we would probably say today. (laughs) Very small and clean lines, but bare minimum. But the young men who had never seen the original temple said, but we've got a temple. It's the first time I've ever seen a temple. I've heard about the other one, but we have one. So they were cheering and the old men were weeping. (laughs) You know, we old men talk about the good old days, the golden days. (laughs) So that's where we are. And fast forward about 78 years, a little less with the temple building. Because now we're in Babylon with Ezra. Now remember, we get in chapter 7 this whole pedigree that I read, and uh, I think you have to practice all these names several times, and it's just a little daunting. But why the pedigree? The Jews were very concerned with having the proper lineage, the proper ancestry. But as you well know, family doesn't always determine godliness, does it? But in this case, it did. Now, his great-great-grandfather had been executed. His son, Sariah's son, uh, had actually been carried to Babylon and established themselves. And actually, in Babylon, at the time of Ezra, things were going well. The Jews were prosperous. They found documents from that time in Babylon that talk about Jews in high places. And we know that from Daniel, don't we? And we know it from other sources. They did well. And they tend to do well wherever they go, usually in the area of finances. (laughs) They're very smart and often get into very key places of influence, and that was true. What put it into Ezra's heart to go back? And this is where we start looking more at who he was. Because one of the phrases, uh, let's, let's go to the next one if we can, Scooter, thanks. So this is just to show you the distances that they had to travel. These were the deportations, meaning where they were sent out of Israel to go into, the, into exile. Uh, these distances were enormous. We're talking about 900 to 1,000 miles on foot with women and children and animals and lots of possessions. 
and it was a very dangerous route known to be full of assaults and, and thieves and, and other things. Uh, especially fascinating because Ezra had told King Artaxerxes that his God would protect them. So when the king suggested a military ex, uh, uh, protection for the people, he refused, but he was worried. So before they left to go back to Jerusalem, they had nine days of prayer and fasting because they really wanted to be sure that their God would protect them. This was a massive, massive empire. Now, just to put this in place, this is Artaxerxes we're talking about. He, he reigned from about 464 to 423. Okay, so he's, he's about, it's about 40 years. Before him was Xerxes. Easy to remember, Xerxes, then Artaxerxes, his son. Xerxes was the husband of Esther. Okay, fitting it all together. Uh, so there were Jews, and you remember that Mordecai the Jew had been instrumental in the whole Persian Empire. The king actually took off his signet ring, which was how you sealed documents, gave it to Mordecai and said, basically, manage my kingdom. So Jews were really in prominent places. And speaking of him, I think we should say at this point, do you remember what he said to his niece, Esther, who knows, but you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And if you don't go, God will raise up help to his people from other sources. But who knows that you have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. And because of her obedience and submission, although her life was at stake, she actually saved the whole Jewish race from being absolutely exterminated by wicked Haman, who was an Amalekite and was absolutely determined to eradicate Jewish people from the face of the earth. Must have had some relationship with Adolf Hitler. Uh, so, next one. So those are the return routes. Now he took the, the, the southern route, so it was a little bit shorter than the first group that came back. And you can go to the next one already, Scooter, if you would. So this would be the actual route of, of Ezra himself. Now he had a group, the first group had been 50,000 strong. Uh, there are 1,496 males, and the reason they counted the males is because they were usually heads of families in this group. And so experts <laughs> have calculated with the family size at the time that the group he led back was probably seven to 8,000 people. Imagine a man who was a scribe, a scholar, probably somewhat retiring, somewhat quiet to some extent, uh, steeped in the scriptures, leading seven to 8,000 people back to Israel. Uh, this was the route he took. Uh, next one, Scooter, if you would. 
almost done with that part of it. Uh, these are the phrases that appear in both Ezra and Nehemiah six times in, in uh, Ezra. The good hand of his God was upon him. Now, Clayton said in the beginning, uh, God has given us marvelous stories of God's hand on us. We use that phrase, don't we? Now, you and I well know God does not have a hand. The Lord Jesus, of course, is in his human body has hands. But God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, John 4.24. So you know that we're not imagining a giant hand here. But we use that phrase to talk about God's blessing and his protection and his, his provision. And the only time in the book of Ezra where it says why God's good hand was upon Ezra is in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, just the last phrase of verse 9, because the good hand of his God was upon him, for Ezra had set his heart to do three things. Now this is where we need to get into the whole purpose of his life. Do you remember what was already said about him? that he was a man, a scribe, uh, skilled in the law of the Lord. And that Hebrew word skilled is very fascinating. It has the idea of being rapid, of being very skillful, moving among lots of material at the same time. God had given him a craving for, a desire for, the study, the deep study of all of the Word of God. Tradition says that he had memorized at least all the first five books of the Bible and probably much more because he lived at a time where much of the Old Testament had already been conceived and written. In fact, he is said to have been the founder of what was called the Great Synagogue where the Old Testament canon, which means the decision about what were the actual books that comprise the Old Testament was that decision was made. You see that his life centers around the Word of God. Now, when I first studied this, I, I've been fascinated for years with the three things that he did, and that's getting ahead of ourselves to the program. Study, life, and ministry. But coming back to it some years later, I realized, I think even more critical than that, and what a lesson for us, is this phrase in verse 10. Ezra had set his heart. Now I know in many places today, what do you hear? Follow your heart. Frankly, that's a bit of a dangerous thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because Jeremiah himself in chapter 17, 9 and 10 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart and try the reins to give unto every man his, his due, in other words. He is the only one who truly knows our hearts. And he says, if you trust in your own heart, you're likely to be a fool because it's deceitful beyond 
what you can even imagine. Deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But the Hebrew word for heart, Ezra set his heart, is the broadest word to describe the inner person of every human being. It includes the mind, for example. Now, we think of it as emotions. You know, yes, I'm going with my heart rather than with my head. I'm too logical. So I need to go with my heart, need to follow my emotions. Uh, that's not the biblical version. Do you remember the phrase in Proverbs? As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Thinketh in his heart, thinks. The heart thinks, okay? So it includes the mind, the conscience, the motives, the emotions, the will, all of that inner uh, part of human beings is included in the heart. So what he's basically saying is, Ezra oriented his whole self with everything he had, everything that was in him to the study, the deep and accurate study, the detailed study of God's word. So, is it any wonder that it says in verse 6 that he was skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given? And later on, we didn't read this part, when King Artaxerxes addresses a letter directly to Ezra, interesting how he describes him, because he says... Uh, in verse 11, for example, now this is the copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra. Who is he? The priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Perfect peace. And then he goes on to describe other things and he, he says uh, later on, let's see if we can, uh, sorry, in verse uh, 18, whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. Uh, you, you definitely get the impression that Ezra himself had his finger in the writing of these permissions, because how on earth would a totally pagan Artaxerxes Persian king know to even describe some of the things that he talks about here, like even the specific offices of the temple, etc. So it's fascinating to see how the word of God just comes in time and time again into the life of, of Ezra. So what do we, what do we learn about him? Well, in everything he did, his program, his purpose was setting his heart. And by the way, I really think there must have been a very critical time in his life as a young man where he sort of sat down and said, what is the direction that I believe my life should take? And he decided because it's a very strong phrase, set his heart. 
I mean, it's like Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem. There's determination. There's decisiveness. It's involving all of his being. He set his heart. This is what I will do. And we know that he was characterized by exactly that. He knew, deeply knew, the word of God. But what I love about now moving to the whole program, which includes the program of of Ezra's life, study, life, and ministry. And I do think that sequence of three things is in that order for a reason. He didn't study God's word just to accumulate knowledge and information. He studied it in order to apply it to his own life. And we get the clear impression that once he had applied it in his life, then he was ready to teach it, and only then. So, as you think of that, uh, I want to give you one example back to purpose again. Uh, I was doing an advanced degree years ago, or about ready to, where I had to fill out a one-page, single-spaced contract of what I was going to do for my final thesis, my final project. I had to write it, turn it in to an advisor. He would look at it with a red pen in hand. And when my one-page, single-spaced paper came back, it was bleeding (laughs) red. And... Many phrases were underlined, and I looked at them, and they were like this. I will try to, I will attempt to, I will seek to, I will endeavor to. And my advisor wrote, you won't try, seek, endeavor, you will. Well, I know the scripture as well as you do, that says, let your yea be yea, your nay be nay, your yes be yes, your no be no. I did not want to lie. And it bothered me to say, I will. I mean, you know, we like to keep our options open. And I didn't know if I really wanted to be tied down to a chronology, to a calendar. I will turn this in on a certain date. I will do this. I will do that. I will. That's what it means to set your heart. I really had to go through a little bit of a crisis before the Lord and say, am I ready to say this? I will do this. Uh, It was a sort of a spiritual overhaul, thankfully. Now that in terms of purpose, but then you get to the area of life. Now we worked in Brazil with a man named uh, Dave Cox, a very dear friend. His father worked with Indian tribes in Guatemala. And it was fascinating because they had a number of people who came to Christ in these tribes and they formed Sunday school classes. But the Sunday school classes were very interesting. You couldn't move from one class to another until you had passed a final test. And it was not a written test. Most of them didn't even read that well. The final test was, if you were studying, for example, honesty, 
if the teacher and every one of the other students agreed that you were honest, then you passed the test and could go on to another class. How would you like that for a final exam? Where everyone is saying, okay, yes, he's a man of integrity. Yes, she's a woman of honesty. Uh, study life. And then ministry. Ezra taught, and we know that he taught a lot. If you go to the book of Nehemiah, you remember the phrase, uh, the joy of the Lord was their strength? Isn't that a great verse? Well, that comes in the context of a huge gathering of Jewish people in the time of Nehemiah, which would have been 13 years later, after the time of Ezra's arrival. And Nehemiah is now governor. But Ezra's still there, and where is he? He's up on a raised platform with assistants on either side, teaching the word of God. And that brought conviction. People were crying and weeping and bowing down and seeing their sin. And Ezra says, this is not a time for crying. This is a time for joy. God's word is restored. God's word is being taught. And by the way, he was teaching in Hebrew, but the people only knew Aramaic, which is similar, but it's kind of, you know, it's a little bit different. For, for Jeanette and me, it's, it's like, you know, Spanish and Portuguese. They're both Romance languages. You can kind of pick up a little bit, but it's different. So he had to explain, and he was also expositing and teaching the Word of God for six hours straight, from six in the morning till noon. And there were kids there. Everybody who could understand... Right, Maggie? <laughs> right, okay. So, the next day, Ezra then has a private session with the heads of households, with leaders, and he's training them in the Word of God. So how do we see the book of Ezra finishing? Now we're talking about ministry. He finds out that many of the people, especially some leaders, were intermarrying with pagan wives. And this wasn't a case like Ruth. You remember Ruth decided to follow the Lord her God, Jehovah. She was a Moabitess. That was not her origin. But she saw the reality of the living God and embraced it fully. We're not talking about that. We're talking about pagan women who included, just like it happened in the time of Solomon, their pagan ways. And they were raising their kids that way. And moms... Uh, both a blessing and possible curse, are huge influences on the lives of their children, aren't they? So you think, Ezra began weeping and confessing his sin, their sin. And if you read chapter 9, it's a beautiful, beautiful prayer, like Nehemiah 9 and Daniel 9, just those passages where a man of God identifies himself with the people, and talks about our sin. And his example is so powerful that in chapter 10, people who, and this is a lovely phrase, trembled at the word of God, gathered around him, and began weeping as well, and saying, we've got to do something. And it was interesting that he was not a man of action so much as Nehemiah was. He just responded. His ministry was almost just his life and isn't that true? Life should be an extension 
or rather ministry should be an extension of our lives. So what happens? And we're wrapping up here, but I, I, hope, I, I really hope that this comes through because this is what has impacted my own life very deeply. And that is his own example of contrition, of worshiping the holy God, God of heaven and earth, seeing how what apparently the people had passed off is maybe a necessity. After all, there are not many girls around here, so we'll just take this pagan. I, I don't know what was in their minds, but some of the leaders were the worst offenders. And they themselves, the people, came up to Ezra and said, we know that we've got to separate from them and even from the children. Now, I think they probably made provision for them, but they realized that they were going right back to the whole reason that we read in Deuteronomy why they had gone into exile in the first place. And Ezra saw that clearly because he was steeped in the word of God and he knew where this was going. So they set it up and in a period of about three to four months they dealt with each case. They were careful about it. They examined it. I'm sure they worked out the details of pro providing for them uh, in some way, but they made that separation to ensure the purity of the people of God and they wouldn't get back into that idolatry which had set them in, sent them into exile in the first place. So, back to Ezra. Probably a rather retiring person, kind of quiet, but could lead if he needed to. He was definitely strong in the Word of God. And he had set his heart, again, to study the Word of the Lord and to practice it. And then, and only then, to teach it. So, as a model for us, what is the measure of your life and what is the measure of mine? I think it has a lot to do with our relationship to the Word of God. Now, obviously, it's the Word of God, and we don't, we're not worshiping the Bible. But the Bible is what informs our hearts so that we may worship the one true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. So as Colossians 3.17 says, we, we want to be richly indwelt by God's Word. We've got to set our hearts for that to happen. So what does that mean? For me personally, I'm doing a program this year called Professor Horner's Bible reading plan. Uh, I've gone through the whole Bible many years past, but th this one's pretty advanced I and mean, pretty intense because he gives you 10 chapters a day from all throughout the Bible to read each day. Um, this, this isn't a five-minute devotional. Uh, at least I don't read that fast, and I certainly wouldn't absorb that fast. You know. Uh, so, just a suggestion as an application. Do we have a program for ourselves where we're in God's Word every day and maybe 15 minutes every day do you think about memorizing the Word of God? My wife has an excellent app that you can use, by the way, since we're all into apps. <laughs> uh, 
that uh, you speak it th into, into the app and uh, type out the first letter, the first word, and some of you are probably familiar with it, but it, it's an excellent way to get God's word into your head. And by the way, as you get older, it's much harder. <laughs> I don't know if it's just a thicker skull or what, but what is your relationship to, to the word of God? Uh, Deuteronomy 17, we won't read it now, was an address to kings about the fact that they should write the word of God out with their own hand, have it with them on the throne, wherever they were, read in it every day, for what reason? So that they might learn to fear the Lord their God. And so that their heart might not be lifted up among their brethren. Humility. So true humility and godliness comes from that kind of approach to the word of God as the center of your life and ministry. And the last thing I would like to say is, uh, as you do that, uh, come to it. Asking God, how may I apply this, Lord? My dear father was an alcoholic until he came to Christ at 65, and he had a saying that all five of us kids hated because <laughs> he would say, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> ah. And Ezra would say, do as I say, or rather do as God's word says and do as I do. And the Apostle Paul says that, doesn't he? Be ye followers of Christ as also I am. Uh, so, study, life, ministry. That's the program centered on the Word of God, but then take it back to that first step. Set your heart. So let's pray. Father, we stand humbled before the simple and yet powerful example of Ezra, whose life was so centered on your word and who exuded in his own life that reverential trust, that fear of you, which was so powerful that the people around him saw the genuineness and integrity of his life and imitated it. Thank you for the way that you used him, but also thank you for the way you desire to use us. Thank you for how you have used us in any way. But we pray that you would continue to do that and that you would help us all to delight in your word that our lives might be like the tree planted by rivers of water and that we might be blessed by having your good hand upon us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.